Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. The U.S. Embassy would occasionally send visitors down to Luxor and we would show them around the monuments and explain the epigraphic work and the conservation efforts done by our expedition and others. One of the people they sent down was David Cornwell, whose pen name is John Le Carré. That was Dr. Peter Fitzgerald Dorman, an author, epigrapher, philologist, and Egyptologist. He spent his childhood in Lebanon, then graduating from Amherst in 1970, and commissioned as a U.S. naval officer in the Pacific Theater until 1974. He returned stateside for graduate studies, and beginning in 1977, Peter spent 11 years as a curator in the Department of Egyptian Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where he assisted with the Tutankhamun exhibition, the reinstallation of the Egyptian galleries, and published a portion of the museum's excavation records from the 1920s and 1930s, while receiving his doctorate from the University of Chicago. In 1988, he was appointed field director of the Epigraphic Survey at Luxor, Egypt, under the auspices of the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute. In 1997, he returned from Egypt to Chicago to teach Egyptian language and history at the Oriental Institute and serve as chairman of the university's Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. In 2008, he was appointed as the 15th president of the American University of Beirut and professor of history and archaeology, remaining in Lebanon until 2017. He is today a professor emeritus of the University of Chicago and affiliate professor at the University of Washington's Middle East Center and the Jackson School of International Studies. Peter is very widely published, including seminal works on the reign of Hatshepsut and the Amarna period. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Max. It's great to be here with you. No, it's better for me because I haven't seen you in a dog's age and I have to recap a lot today. But first, let's get the core thing established. You've had such a brilliant career. Shall we address you today as commander, doctor, professor, president, or, or something else? <laughs> well, none of those, unfortunately, apply to me anymore. But since I'm more or less fully retired, you could call me your retiredness if you'd like. You're not shy, but you are retiring. Well, then let's dust off the time machine because 40 years ago, we used to have lunch together in the Metropolitan Museum's then staff cafeteria, and we would gossip about our respective departments, you in Egyptian, me in Greek and Roman. And today is the big reveal. Will you confirm or deny that when the Met reassembled the Temple of Dendur out of hundreds of numbered blocks, the proper location of a few of them eluded your team and they remain in the Met's basement to this day. I love that question, Max. It's, uh, it's another conspiracy theory for our times. <laughs> and uh, I can't really confirm nor deny the rumor. The temple actually was put together before I got to the Met. But I do remember hearing that rumor. It's a great one. Well, okay, Peter, so the Temple of Dender, we don't know if there are any missing blocks, but are there other things not on display of interest in the Egyptian department at the Met? There are some things that are not on display. They're basically in a storage room for objects that are not ancient. In other words, as you know, in your department and in mine and in museums around the world, all collections are occasionally scrutinized to reassess their holdings for objects that may be reattributed or in light of new information or research. So mm -hmm. some of these objects in the Egyptian storage room are quite fascinating because they are fakes. Mm -hmm. Some are quite hilarious. For example, there's a model of a man on horseback that's supposed to be a typical Middle Kingdom object from 1900 BC. It's quite convincing in form, but there's no evidence that Egyptians ever rode on horseback. And right. horses don't even appear until about four centuries later. So 
The horse is also parceled out with kind of dividing lines as to show mm-hmm. choice cuts of meat. So it's as if it were used to train a butcher's apprentice. And it's totally nonsensical if you think about it, but it was actually on view for quite a while. And the Greek and Roman department had the Etruscan warriors on view long before you and I got there, which were spectacular forgeries. And amazing that they were deceived for, in that case, I think about 50 years. Speaking of ancient history, let's go back to the Tutankhamun exhibition that opened in December of 1978. Was your department prepared for the onslaught of hundreds of thousands of visitors during what was a four-month run? I'm not sure we were really prepared for the enormous onslaught of public interest in the show. As you will know, the uh, Tutankhamun show was the first mega blockbuster show that museums hosted in the country. They're a lot more common now. I mean, we've seen shows that are devoted to centuries of Ottoman art or the holdings of the Vatican Museum. But the Tutankhamun show was actually quite a small one. There were just 55 objects, but they were all spectacular. It made a huge impact on the public, but it had to be arranged through diplomatic channels. It was an agreement between Richard Nixon at the time and President Anwar Sadat, Mm -hmm. and no insurance company would touch it because the Mm. objects were all priceless. And it took an act of Congress to ensure the exhibit. And in fact, the objects were delivered. They were transported to the U.S. on a U.S. Navy destroyer. So, uh, hmm. But the Met on the whole handled the enormous crowd. It wasn't really our department. It was a ticketed show. It sold out very quickly. The only thing that we really did was to coordinate with the Egyptian curators in regard to the conservation and the handling and the packing of the objects. We all got four tickets as staff members to pass around or put on the open market. And it was highly prized. I like to think of the Tutankhamun show as being the equivalent of trying to get tickets to Comic-Con or a Justin Bieber concert these days. Mm -hmm. Precisely the analogy I would have drawn. And speaking of history, Peter, the Oriental Institute, founded in 1919, has been sponsoring archaeological and survey expeditions in every country of the Near East. Is that where you developed your grounding in epigraphy? And by the way, what is epigraphy? Epigraphy is essentially a study and recording of inscriptions that appear on hard surfaces, stone or clay, any kind of hard surface. Egyptian epigraphy is not easy to teach in the classroom. It's best picked up in the field over long periods of time. And it requires a knowledge of whatever script you're studying. It's often an ancient script like Greek or Chinese or Akkadian, and how they are used in antiquity. I didn't actually pick it up at Chicago, but when I was working on a tomb project for the Metropolitan Museum in Luxor, I was invited to join Chicago's epigraphic work as kind of a trainee for a couple of weeks. And I learned that one of the things you do, and this probably sounds weird, is you develop a close relationship with the stone. It's a family show, Peter. I just want to point out. <laughs> well, some of my uh, closest relationships are with various blocks <laughs> in Luxor Temple and Medina Tabu. But, uh, but it's very important because you have to understand the quality of the stone, how smooth it is, whether it flakes easily, whether there are inclusions in the stone, and how that might affect your interpretation of the carved lines in it. It's important to remember that a surface like this is three-dimensional. It's not flat. The purpose of epigraphy is really to provide a definitive record of what's on the surface. I guess it can be compared to editing 
an ancient manuscript, except this one happens to be three-dimensional. Part of the whole purpose of epigraphy is to look at damaged areas in an inscription and uh, to attempt to restore what might be missing based on other textual parallels. Peter, speaking of damage, climate change is obviously accelerating the deterioration of stone surfaces you have laboriously documented over decades. So what can be done through pattern recognition software or other innovations to capture information that's literally fading away and may not be readable by the human eye? For epigraphy itself, the real quality of work is achieved through the human eye and the human hand. Because every inscription in ancient Egypt is really a unique record in itself, it's very hard to program artificial intelligence or digital recovery to kind of project what might have been there originally. There are ways in which computers can be used. In the last 10 or 15 years, the epigraphic survey has adopted a digital recording method that speeds up the recording and correction of some of our drawings. But in essence, it still requires multiple eyes to check the surface, to check the drawings and make sure that's an accurate record of what is there. And what is normally there? Are these about gods and pharaohs and are they stories of daring do? What, what's the majority of such epigraphic readings that you end up with? The majority of inscriptions are on temples or tombs. So they mm -hmm. tend to be rather repetitious, rather banal inscriptions. They can be on flat surfaces or curved surfaces, such as columns. So they can be a challenge to, to capture accurately. But they do tend to be religious inscriptions, dedications to the gods, records of biographies of private persons, a whole variety of things. Very rarely do we come across a historical inscription that sheds great light on the history of ancient Egypt. There are mm -hmm. some inscriptions that relate to battles, such as the Battle of Kadesh, left by Ramses II, or Ramses III, who recorded battles against the Libyans and Nubians and the Sea Peoples at the end of the New Kingdom, around yeah. 1100 BC. Peter, I used to tease you from the point of view of a classicist that you made the same damn cat for several thousand years. We see very little change in the typology of cats. And I'm wondering with these inscriptions, are you saying that it's boring or are you saying that the repetition, you get used to it and you enjoy the nuances of distinction among them? Well, the, uh, the Egyptians may have rendered cats in much the same way for hundreds of years. <laughs> What's, what's especially fascinating is, of course, the paleography, the shape of ancient signs changes uh, quite, quite significantly in the course of several millennia. In fact, the language develops various kinds of scripts as well. So in examining inscriptions, you have to be very aware of the kind of paleography you're looking at. The form of signs, the way they are used, even if you know nothing about the origins or the provenance of an inscription, will mm -hmm. tell you whether you're dealing with something from the 18th dynasty or the 12th dynasty or the 26th dynasty. What about papyrus? That's not something that you focused on in your career. But if you were to be handed a papyrus today, would you know what to do with it? To some extent, yes. We are trained in looking at papyri. Papyri are actually written not in hieroglyphs, but in a cursive form that looks rather different from hieroglyphs. Nonetheless, it's, they're still possible to read. The process of examining papyri and editing papyrus is a different technique entirely. You lived, as you said, in Luxor for almost a decade with your family, right? Chicago House is rather a special place. It's a seasonal expedition that goes for six months of every year. 
most field expeditions run for maybe a month or six weeks. Yeah. But in fact, Chicago House was developed to take advantage of the entire winter months. It's the only time in the Egyptian year that you can actually functionally work outside. The summer is simply yet too hot. The team lives all together in close quarters. It's a single residence building. We eat all of our meals together, and even on weekends. So it's a very close kind of environment. Well, our family came over for about four months every year for the six-month season. Mm-hmm. My wife, Kathy, was a teacher, and our girls were pretty young at the time. And so one of her tasks was to homeschool the kids in yeah. whatever they needed to learn during the months they were away from school. So it was challenging for her. It's a bit like bringing your family to your 24-hour place of work, if you can imagine it. Privacy was at a premium, and that was a challenge for us, I think. Kathy, in her spare time, joined in with the work of the survey. She ran the kitchen and household staff for a number of years. It was not her favorite job. She also volunteered in recording things in our extensive photo archives and helped to record books, new acquisitions in our library. And by the way, Max, she's written a very good-hearted memory about her years at Chicago House. It's still unpublished, but it's quite hilarious at moments. And if this ever gets into print, there are about a thousand Egyptologists who'd be (laughs) very eager to hear about what happens backstage at Chicago House. I do want to add that the Chicago House staff was absolutely wonderful to our kids. It was a warm and interesting environment for them. And let me tell you one other thing. Chicago House is mentioned in one of John le Carre's novels. The U.S. Embassy would occasionally send visitors down to Luxor, and we would show them around the monuments and explain the epigraphic work and the conservation efforts done by our expedition and others. One of the people they sent down was David Cornwell, whose pen name is John le Carre, and he was in the middle mm-hmm. of doing research for a volume. It was only a couple of years later that his book, The Night Manager, came out. And to our astonishment, Chicago House appears among the first few pages of that book. What do your daughters recall from that experience? What did they take away from it that may have stuck with them? Our kids have very fond memories of their years at Chicago House. And they went there when they were only five and seven. And so they simply accepted that experience as part of how everyone grows up. <laughs> um, they, um, they didn't think it was anything special. It was just what their parents did. They became uh, very used to international travel, interacting with other cultures, other languages. Uh, One of our daughters now lives in the UK and has been there for 15 years. Our other daughter spent time in Cairo and Mm -hmm. spent some time learning Arabic. So -hmm. it was a profound experience. They had very fond memories of the place. And you spent your childhood in Beirut and eventually returned to serve as president of the American University there in 2008. And I remember when you were appointed and before you started, you took a crash course in presidenting. I'm wondering, can you describe what that course was like? Uh, I will will do my best. Uh, At the time that uh, EUB gave me the invitation to join as president, of course, I'd had very little experience in the administration of higher education. Um, I had been a department chair, but that was about it. So the Mm -hmm. uh, board of the American University sent me to a three-day seminar at Harvard University for new presidents. And this is kind of a cliche. I mean, who but Harvard would host a seminar for new presidents? 
And of course, we had we dealt with big issues such as university finances and major donors and fundraising or faculty affairs, strategic planning, alumni relations. Some of these are challenging issues or rather thorny ones for presidents to deal with. But especially what I picked up and I found most interesting was the whole idea of a president as a living logo. And I think this actually pertains to any head of an institution such as you have been, Max. I mean, you also share with me an academic background. And when we speak as a scholar, we try to persuade our audience by kind of marshalling facts and logic. But as the head of an institution, you more or less have to inspire your audience by articulating the values of the institution. And you have to act accordingly. As president, and as Kathy joined me, They are very curious. People are very curious about your home life. You know, you're scrutinized every minute. And I learned especially to be cautious about using humor in Mm. case people took my words at face value. And um, that landed me in a pickle more than once. So you're saying that at Harvard, you weren't trained in president jokes. Presidential humor was not one of the topics we discussed. (laughs) (laughs) The board also sent Kathy and me to what was called surveillance school in Virginia. So Mm. we could be trained on how to recognize uh, if we were being surveilled by agents of some power or some militia. Uh, So we learned how to shoot weapons, 45 caliber firearms and um, AK-47s. And we picked up uh, techniques of defensive high-speed driving on a racetrack so we could avoid captors. And this was totally useless because traffic in Beirut is usually at a standstill and we had no chance to drive at high speeds. But I have to say that Kathy was especially good at ramming cars so she could break through checkpoints. Feel free to come for a drive with us at any time. We can show off our stuff. Peter, that is fantastic. If you'll recall, we had a pistol range at the Metropolitan Museum, which I would frequent on Fridays after lunch. It was a 50-foot regulation range. Basically, what I'm hearing from you is that you were very much at home with weaponry. I'm assuming that when you started as the president at the American University of Beirut, that was not something you focus on. What were your priorities? What were some of the things you're proudest of? Well, of course, fundraising above all, but there were some very interesting issues. During the Civil War in Lebanon, tenure for faculty had been suspended indefinitely. And my predecessor, John Waterbury, and I both felt that the reinstatement of tenure was absolutely important for developing AUB as a research institution and for recruitment. And uh, so we pushed very hard to get this done. The board of trustees was reluctant. Even the faculty were reluctant. But nonetheless, we we managed to develop a plan that was ultimately approved the year I left the presidency. So AUB is now offering tenure-track positions for the first time in more than 30 years. I was looking for ways also to increase the diversity of our student body. And about 75% of the undergraduates come from Lebanese high schools. And we were always pushing for more international diversity. And also new sources for student aid so that we could offer scholarships to people who were from other kind of economic, more more deprived economic backgrounds within Mm -hmm. the country. We were also in the middle of expansion, the upgrading of the AUB Medical Center, Mm -hmm. which is a very important hospital and training center. The old building was actually built with USAID monies back in the 1960s. And of course, we put great emphasis on the importance of a liberal arts education. Like all American universities, it is the core of undergraduate studies there, uh, despite the Lebanese preference for STEM courses, so science, technology, 
engineering and mathematics. It's actually a kind of a struggle, I think, that even American universities here in the U.S. Um, have as well. The humanities, yeah. social studies are very much underrepresented. My brother, Brom, is a professor at the American University in Cairo, has been there for a while, and he's a professor focused on philosophy on Immanuel Kant. So he's one of those holding out in the humanities. Good for him, and we need more like him. <laughs> yeah. Were you able to continue your scholarly work while at AUB as president? Actually, no. I had very little time for scholarly work, aside from attending an occasional conference and delivering general remarks. Um, the mm -hmm. presidency was a bit like trying to get a drink from a fire hose. It was total immersion. And I never felt that I really had enough time during a 24-hour period to do everything I should be doing. And now it's a bit strange trying to get back into the field after almost a decade's absence. I mean, much has happened in the field of Egyptology. And uh, I have to yeah, say that, that, that is a, that's Peter, that is a laugh line waiting to happen. I mean, the place ended up pretty badly under the Ptolemaic period. And what has changed? Tell us, <laughs> what has changed in Egyptology in 10 years when you consider the thousands before it? It, true, yeah. I mean, a great deal has happened in terms of uh, reinterpreting chronology. There are remarkable archaeological discoveries being made. And when I go to conferences, it's absolutely fascinating to listen to young scholars in particular and listen to what they are doing in terms of their current dissertations. Mm -hmm. It's all quite extraordinary work, and it covers the whole range of archaeology, art history, uh, philology, uh, religion. So it's, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a cultural mix, and it's a yeah. very live field. But Peter, in art history, as you've watched, so much has been tilted in the direction away from objects, the study of objects, to the study of ideas, of theories, now of various racial, social constructs that need to be examined freshly. Is that happening in Egyptology as well? It is indeed. It's happening very much so. I think there is a major move away from looking at an object of art or museum object as an entity in itself uh, without examining the cultural context or the ideas that might have been involved in its creation. Ancient art, much of ancient art, at least in ancient Egypt, was actually not produced for art. It was produced for a particular function. And uh, so that's a very important part of trying to interpret our own perceptions of mm -hmm. ancient art generally. A while back, you helped me prepare for an audition to narrate a book on Egyptology, and you seem to say that we don't know with certainty how to pronounce variants of ancient Egyptian language. So I'm curious there too, is AI playing a role in the evolution of philology? And for our audience, what is philology? Gosh, I wish I had a better answer for you in terms of artificial intelligence. Um, I'm not aware that it has been employed mm -hmm. usefully, at least for Egyptian philology. But that may just be due to my own myopic focus on <laughs> Egyptian texts. I mean, philology really is the study of texts of all kinds, and it includes a whole host of things, the origins of a language, language families, grammar and syntax, writing methods and tools. For ancient Egyptian, one of the fascinating bits is the evolution of language from earliest times. The first indications of writing happen around 3200 BC, almost to the present day. I mean, Coptic is the last phase of Pharaonic Egyptian, and mm -hmm. it is still used today in the Coptic church, but is no longer a spoken language. But it has very close syntactical connections 
with the kind of language being spoken during the time of Tutankhamun and Ramses II. Nonetheless, there are many things that we do not understand about Egyptian, uh, especially the verbal system is not entirely understood because in that system that the Egyptians used, consonants are written, but rarely vowels that would assist in vocalization. And actually, this, this was the problem for me when, when you asked me about uh, the vocalization of names. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm afraid I didn't give you very great results. I didn't get the book, so it really didn't end up mattering that much. But I was no. astonished I asked you a question you couldn't answer. That was the whole point no. of my question. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> and so in this realm of the following on of Egyptian language and its evolution, are you more comfortable in the Middle Kingdom, in Old Kingdom? Where do you find yourself happiest when you're making your way through hieroglyphs? Essentially, for me, it's the Middle Kingdom and New Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And part of that is the fact that Middle Kingdom Egyptian was kind of held up as the classic form of writing for centuries after it actually faded out as a spoken language. It was recognized as the purest form of Egyptian. Mm -hmm. And even as late as the Ptolemaic period, scribes and priests were doing their very best to try to imitate those verbal forms, although they had clearly uh, lost the mastery of that particular phase of language. Give us the Middle Kingdom dates, if you will. Middle Kingdom dates would be about 1950 to 1750 BC, and New Kingdom, perhaps 1500 to 1000 BC. Peter, are you going to be attending the opening of the new Grand Egyptian Museum, the world's largest archaeological museum at some 900,000 square feet, opening later this year? Yeah, that's an astonishing achievement for Egypt. I would love to see the museum, but I probably wouldn't go to the opening. I suspect it's going to be uh, a bit like Comic-Con, uh, hundreds of thousands of people there, and I'd better, <laughs> it would be better to visit the museum alone without the crowds on opening day. Spoken like an Egyptologist. Peter, thank you for making time to participate in the first phase of my instruction in Egyptology since we left the Met all those decades ago. I really appreciate your making the time. It's a pleasure talking with you, Max. I hope we have another chance to get together soon. We've been speaking today with Dr. Peter Dorman, an author, epigrapher, philologist, and Egyptologist. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.